0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 26, Joshua chapter 24, continued. As we continue in this final chapter of this uh, tremendous book of Joshua, chapter 24... We're going to need another lesson, even beyond this one, to explore more of the great God principles present in it. The more I studied this book, the more I began to spot the profound questions that it dealt with. And... Um, That's why we're going to spend three weeks in it. There's so much there. You know, we ended last week with a rather long discussion about the ancient mindset as concerned gods in general, and especially those Canaanite gods. And you know, that subject on the surface might not seem especially relevant for the modern believer, but the reality is that from beginning to end, the Bible deals with false gods and idolatry, which is the worship of these gods of the pagans. And we also find that despite the active presence of Jehovah, Israel constantly flirted with those gods. At times, giving up worship to him altogether in favor of these worthless fantasies. But more typically, Israel simply incorporated some of the pagan gods and the Canaanites worship practices with their own scripturally ordained practices as set down in the Law of Moses. Now, such a problem among God's people is hardly a thing of the past. Most Christian leaders today still find the need to admonish their flocks to steer clear of idolatry, usually meaning a predisposition to behave as the unbelieving world behaves and valuing what the ungodly values. But I doubt we really even understand the true nature of idolatry. Therefore, I want to begin today's lesson with another aspect about what the general beliefs were in ancient and biblical times concerning how this sphere of the gods operated and 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 how humans interacted with them. And the reason I harp on this matter is that the writers of the Bible had this in mind when they wrote. So unless we know their mental picture, we're gonna miss the impact of their words. Now in the twenty first century Western world, we tend to compartmentalize religion in our lives. We tend to see our religion, our faith, as but one aspect of our lives and as not terribly unlike exercise or our favorite social activity or in most cases our jobs. We have a place and we have a purpose and we have a time in our lives for each one of these activities and we consciously Attempt to keep them separate from one another. Our jobs shouldn't affect our family relationships. Our hobbies shouldn't affect our social activities. Our religion should only have to do with strictly religious activities under limited circumstances. Therefore, the God of our jobs is our boss and our paycheck. The God of our social activity is pleasure and leisure the God of our exercises, our bodies, our physical bodies. And none of this necessarily has a tie to the God of our religion. Now, naturally, I'm generalizing. Not every last person thinks that way. But our system of government, education, and Western culture does indeed strive for this philosophy of life. Now, this kind of compartmental thinking was unknown during any portion of the Bible era from creation to Christ. Okay. The overarching umbrella of life for the, for, for the people of those times was the god or gods they worshipped because they affected every part of your life. Okay. The community and nation you were a member of were identified in a large part by which gods were served. A culture unified itself around their common set of gods. So to serve a god meant that virtually every detail of your life and your neighbor's life revolved around pleasing or appeasing that deity and his friends. If you ever tried to pull away, your family and your friends were sure to try to keep you attached. And as we've discussed on so many occasions... Those gods were thought to observe national borders. So when you ventured outside of your country and into another nation, the power of your god was diminished or he wasn't present with you at all. Further, if you wanted to communicate with your gods to ask for their help or for them to do all they were capable of doing for you, you took them along with you in the form of uh, carved wooden and stone images lose your God image, you were really in trouble. Okay. What I want for all of you to keep at the forefront of your minds as we continue today in Joshua 24 is that it is because the Hebrews continued to think exactly as their Canaanite neighbors and enemies thought concerning the world of the gods. That's the reason that the emphasis of Joshua 24 is on idolatry and the need to abandon the practices and religious customs that were embedded in the Israelite psyche. Because to hang on to these things in light of all that the Lord God had done for them and taught them was rebellion of the highest order and foolishness beyond measure with the most painful of consequences just looming out there on the horizon. So let's reread a large portion of this chapter, this amazing theological treatise, actually, that, that is the 24th chapter of Joshua. We're going to start reading from verse 6, and that's on page uh, 268, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Joshua chapter 24, verse 6. Yes, I brought your fathers out of Egypt. You arrived at the sea and the Egyptians were pursuing your ancestors with chariots and horsemen to the Sea of Suf. But when they cried out to Adonai, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, overwhelmed them with the sea and drowned them. Your eyes saw what I did in Egypt and then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you into the land of the Amorites living beyond the Jordan. They fought against you, but I handed them over to you. You took possession of their land, and I destroyed them ahead of you. Then Balak, the son of Sippor, king of Moab, rose up and fought against Israel, and he sent and sum- summoned Belong, the son of Dor, to put a curse on you. But I refused to listen to Belong, and he actually blessed you. And this way I rescued from him. Next you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites, the Prezi, the Canaanites, the Hiti, the Girgashi, the Hevi, and the Yurusi, and I handed them over to you. I sent the hornet out ahead of you, driving them out from ahead of you, the two kings of the Amorites. It wasn't by your sword or your bow. Then I gave you a land where you had not worked, cities you had not built, and you lived there. You eat fruit from vineyards and olive groves, which you didn't plant. Therefore, fear Adonai and serve him truly and sincerely. Put away the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve Adonai. If it seems bad to you to serve Adonai, then choose today whom you're going to serve. Will it be the gods your ancestors served beyond the river? Or the gods of the Amorite in whose land you're now living? As for me and my household, we will serve Adonai. And the people answered, Far be it from us that we would abandon Adonai to serve other gods, because it's Adonai, our God, who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from a life of slavery and did those great signs before our eyes and preserved us all along the way we traveled and among the peoples we passed through. And it was Adonai who drove out from ahead of us all the peoples, the Amorites living in the land. Therefore, we too will serve Adonai, for he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You can't serve Adonai because he's holy. He's a jealous God. He'll not forgive your crimes and sins. If you abandon Adonai and serve foreign gods, he'll turn, do you harm, destroy you after he's done you good. But the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve Adonai. Joshua said to the people, Then you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Adonai to serve him. The people answered, We are witnesses. Now Joshua urged, put away the foreign gods you have among you, and turn your hearts to Adonai, the God of Israel. And the people answered, Joshua, we will serve Adonai, our God. We will pay attention to what he says. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, laying down for them laws and rulings there at Shechem, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the Torah of God, and then he took a big stone and set it up there under the oak next to the sanctuary of Adonai. And Joshua said to all the people, see, this stone will be a witness against us, because it has heard all the words of Adonai, which he said to us, therefore it will be a witness against you in case you deny your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And after this, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Adonai, died. He was 110 years old. They buried him on his property in Timnat Serah, which is in the hills of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash And Israel served Adonai throughout Joshua's lifetime and throughout the lifetimes of the leaders who outlived Joshua and had known all the deeds that Adonai had done on behalf of Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried in Shechem, in the parcel of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and they became a possession of the descendants of Joseph. Finally, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him on the hill belonging to Pinchas, his son, which had been given to him in the hills of Ephraim. The location chosen of Shechem for this covenant renewal ceremony is so very appropriate for several reasons. First is that Shechem was where God promised Abraham that this was the land he would give to his descendants, and showed Joshua, and, and rather now Joshua is leading a ceremony that essentially marks the fulfillment of that promise. And what better place than the exact same spot where it all began? Now, second, this proves something that no ancient person would ever have argued against. But most of the Western world today would declare it as a myth. That history is circular. The Bible explains that history must be circular. Because the universe operates in never-changing patterns. In our most advanced societies, we've come to the conclusion that we're evolution-driven, not pattern-driven. And therefore, history must be a straight line instead of circular. What happened yesterday might lead to tomorrow, but there is no repeatable pattern. A saying I remember my father using on me when I was a young man was that the definition of insanity is believing that if you keep doing the same things the same way, you'll eventually get different results. And of course, that was his way of telling me that until I changed my ways, I could count on the same predicaments and problems to keep happening that resulted from my insistence on repeating the same bad decisions. My father's saying, I think, would be challenged and dismissed by modern scientists and social engineers today. They say that indeed, no matter how poor the results may have been in past eras, that we can do what the ancients did, or even those of a merely previous generation, but with different and better results. And this is usually thought to be due to our advanced intelligence and technology. We are told that only the unenlightened look to the past for answers. That a progressive people should look forward with no constraints. Now Joshua recognized that Israel's history had come full circle. And so he brought the people to Shechem to ceremonially reenact what the namesake and founder of Israel, Jacob, called Israel did at this same exact location 500 years or more earlier. He ordered the members of his family to bury their idols, to rid themselves of all their gods. Jacob had returned to Canaan after more than two decades up in Mesopotamia, where he lived with his uncle Laban. And Mesopotamia, generally the area of modern-day Iraq, Jacob married both of Laban's daughters, acquired some concubines, and so he developed a substantial family of his own. And upon leaving the area, Rachel pilfered her father's gods and brought them with her to Canaan. But other family members would not have left their idols behind either. As Jacob's family grew, he apparently tolerated their desire to hang on to their familiar gods. But after a calamitous event, when his daughter, Dinah, was raped by the king of Shechem's son, and afterwards her brothers, Levi and Simeon, led their other brothers on a raid of revenge upon the city of Shechem that resulted in every last adult male being slaughtered, Jacob realized that drastic change was necessary. Thus we read this excerpt in Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and live there. And make there an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled Esau, your brother. Then Jacob said to his household, <coughs> and um, Jacob said to his household and all the others with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you. Purify yourselves, put on fresh clothes. We're going to move on and go up to Badel. There I'll build an altar to God who answered me when I was in such distress and stayed with me wherever I went. Then Uh, They gave Jacob all the foreign gods in their possession and the earrings they were wearing, and Jacob buried them under the pistachio tree near Shechem. While they were traveling, a terror from God fell upon the cities around them so that none of them pursued the sons of Jacob. You know, we can understand the need to bury the God images, but why did Jacob's family have to give up their earrings? Because it was usual for jewelry to be fashioned using symbols of the attributes of the various gods. Did they worship their earrings? No. But nonetheless, they represented something from their past that needed to be left behind. And it was definitely not pleasing to El Shaddai, so they had to go. Now, five centuries later, we read in Joshua 24.14, Therefore serve Adonai, serve him truly and sincerely, put away those gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve Adonai. So there at the same traditional spot that Jacob buried those false gods of his past in order to move on into a new life in Yehovah. So Joshua ordered all Israel to put away, to bury, whatever vestiges of false gods that remained among them so that they would follow only the God of Israel. Now notice the description of the gods that were to be put away. It was the gods of your ancestors from beyond the Euphrates, up in Mesopotamia. Israel was still dallying in that same pantheon of gods that Jacob permitted his household to transport from Mesopotamia so many centuries earlier. You know, some things that we choose to do have lasting effects and unintended consequences that we can hardly imagine. The first 13 verses of chapter 24 recount God's faithfulness to Israel in the form of recounting their salvation history. Now that's a term, salvation history, that I've used in past lessons and you're going to continue to hear wherever God leads us in studying his word because redemption, salvation, is indeed the underlying theme of the entire Bible. Sometimes we forget That salvation, indeed, had a long history. Far too many Christians uh, believe that salvation history begins and ends in Jesus. But he was only the culmination, the fulfillment of a certain portion of that history, the part that involved atonement for sin. Salvation history, in its broadest sense, Goes back, to Ab- uh, goes back to Adam but in a much more specific sense it traces back to Abraham with the Lord establishing a very specific line of people that would carry out his redemptive plan. These were the Hebrews. Never forget that the, pal- uh, the salvation process is anything but completed. Okay, we have a long way to go as reflected in what we commonly call end times prophecies and then the second coming and later still the establishment of the millennial kingdom and ultimately a new earth and then the salvation process is completed the reason that the Lord through Joshua picked this moment to summarize Israel's past is that Israel's identity was all wrapped up in their history with God But this review was also setting up a scenario that's not all that happy, and one that we need to pay close attention to. It is that a people who has identified itself to the God of Israel, has benefited by that relationship, and has been redeemed by this merciful God, have obligations to him. And if they don't meet those obligations, there can be destructive consequences. And we're going to talk a little more about that shortly. But first, look at verses 9 and 10. It remembers the story of the king of Moab who hired a prophet named Bilam to come and curse Israel. And the reason for this action by that king, of course, was that Israel was coming to take the king's land. There is a significant theological principle contained in these two short verses that I'd be remiss to overlook. Now, we don't have time today to read the story of Balak and Bilal as it spans three chapters in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. You can go review it on your own. But the gist of it is that Bilal is a Gentile prophet who does have power. He appears to be aware of Jehovah, but is definitely not a prophet of Jehovah. And the king of Moab summons this Bilaam to come and curse Israel for him, and Bilaam uh, agrees, provided he's paid handsomely. However, on his journey to Moab to do this, he encounters God, who tells him that he's not to curse Israel on behalf of the king, but rather he's to issue a blessing. Now, the God principle in this story is this. Unlike the pagan prophets who manipulated their gods on behalf of men, the true prophet simply takes orders from God and carries them out. God is unimpressed with the wants of prophets and he cannot be boxed in. God doesn't listen to and obey prophets. He directs their actions and words. The thing to understand is that Bilam was no charlatan. He did have power. And he did have the authority to curse. Where did that power come from? The God he worshipped and who lent him power and authority. The same one who was behind all false gods. Satan. But the lesson we see from this is that Satan can do nothing that the Lord God doesn't allow. And therefore neither can Satan's prophets. In fact, as is a Christian saying that what men might need for evil the Lord can use for good, the same things reflected in Bilak and Bal. Satan can intend to curse, but the Lord can turn it to blessing. Another important principle that didn't fully escape Israel, nor Unfortunately, for fully internalizing them is that Jehovah is God over everyone and everything. No God or their prophet can stand up to him, nor does the God of Israel find himself bound by geographical or political or national boundary lines. So after eloquently reminding Israel of even more recent history, the crossing of the Jordan, the conquering of Canaan, Joshua now presents this conclusion to the people. He says, you know, it's self-evident that your proper response, people of Israel, is to fear Jehovah and serve him faithfully. That should be your response. And after forcefully stating that conclusion, he puts this question before Israel in verse 15. If you don't want to serve the God of Israel... Then whom will you serve? Will it be the gods that Father Abraham's ancestors served? Will it be the gods that the Amorites serve? That is, the God system that's currently most prevalent in Canaan is still all around you? You see, even though it may not seem so, every human, including atheists, serves someone or something. It's only a matter of to whom we give our service and allegiance. When Israel gained their independence from Egypt and from Egypt's gods, they moved on to a dependence on Jehovah. For those who say there is no God, they are actually serving the evil one, and he is fully their master. But they're so deceived, They honestly believe they're only serving themselves. Now, since atheism is only about a 300-year-old concept, then to the ancient mind, it was never a matter of whether or not to serve a god. It was just which one, or two, or five. And thus the people of Israel understood Joshua's question. At least they thought they did. But as we're going to soon see, this matter was not so simple. It had a depth and a hope to it that the people missed. And Joshua knew they were missing it. Thus we come upon an odd conversation between Joshua and the people's representatives. See, here's the key to understanding the depth of this question about what God's Israel were served that Joshua had just put to the people. It was all in the context of the Hebrews and or their parents personally seeing and experiencing the mighty works of God. It was in the context of Hebrew knowing the God of Israel. But even more, it was in the context of their already being redeemed by the God of Israel. None of this was theoretical or invisible. They had already been rescued, redeemed, seen their enemies defeated and given rest in their own land. But it had already happened. If we were to draw a direct parallel of their situation to modern times, it would be to believers, those who've been saved, Who are being addressed by Joshua? Because we have experienced God. We already know God, and we are redeemed by God. So, doesn't it seem strange that the already redeemed people, the Israelites, who have been walking with the Lord in His very presence for several years, were led by that fire cloud, have seen Him in the most visible of ways? are now being asked which God will they serve. Brothers and sisters in Messiah, this is a question that you and I are faced with every morning we awaken. Who are we going to serve today? Our freedom is so complete that the God of the universe gives us the liberty to go and serve another God or person or thing any time we choose. It's not his will for us to do that. But it is his character that he will hold none of us against our free will. It ought to frighten us to our core that that possibility still exists within us that we can choose to turn our backs on the Lord and serve another assuredly with devastating consequences. Joshua says, follow my example. As for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. Now, if the same question that Joshua asked his congregation were asked by a leader standing before his synagogue or church congregation, if I presented this question to you, without doubt the response would be identical to what we read that the Israelites say back to Joshua in verse 16. Oh, far be it from us that we would abandon Adonai to serve other gods. Oh my goodness, how could you think such a thing? I mean, how could you ever contemplate that our answer would be anything else but that we agree that Jehovah saved us and we'll serve him all and only him? But then in verse 19, we get a very surprising response from Joshua that has frankly befuddled scholars, many scholars, over the centuries and has sent them scurrying for answers. Because Joshua says... Israel, you can't serve Adonai. And this is because, Joshua says, he's a holy God and he's a jealous God and he will not forgive your sins against him. And he goes on in the next verse to say that abandoning the worship of Jehovah will mean that God will do harm evil in some translations, to his own people, and that he will destroy them after he's done all this good for them. Now, I just don't think we can grasp that Joshua's statement is one of the most shocking in the entire Old Testament. He is essentially saying that the people who are vowing to honor God this is a covenant renewal ceremony after all, so what the people are doing is essentially making a vow to reaffirm the Torah. He says, they're not capable of doing what they're saying they'll do. So Joshua poses the question of which God they will serve, and he receives the answer from the people that we would all hope and expect to hear, we'll serve God. Joshua rejects it. Why? Well, scholars have given several possible solutions to this dilemma, but frankly, most of them don't pass muster. Because as often happens in modern biblical scholarship, the present circumstances and actual contexts written in the scriptures is ignored in favor of some philosophical answer or agenda. Or has become popular quite recently that this particular verse in Joshua is labeled as a late insertion by some unknown editor, so we should just discard it because it just causes us too much trouble. Rather, the whole matter of this chapter, as I stated from the beginning of our study, is that of the danger to Israel of worshipping other gods. You know, Christianity in particular has taken on this peculiar habit of taking certain warning statements in the Bible particularly ones in the New Testament, as purely rhetorical. That is, they are statements that sound terribly ominous to our relationship with the Lord, but in reality, we're told, it's a situation that can't actually ever happen. Now, by the way, I totally reject that disrespectful treatment of God's Word as though at times what we read in its passages is tantamount to little more than an exasperated parent making hollow threats to a troublesome child and then later recanting it all, but as just an emotional outburst. No way. Joshua's statement that Israel is not equipped to worship God is not rhetorical. In fact, it is so deep and full of truth and light, I'm not sure I can find the words, but I'm going to try. First, know that Joshua was not addressing some future possibility of idolatry within Israel he was addressing a present reality some of Israel was indeed practicing idolatry even if they didn't think they were or they simply publicly denied it in the emotion of the moment to express unity with their brothers at this ceremony and even though the theology taught by the priests of Israel left no doubt that service to other gods was just not a possibility for Israel, in reality it was happening. The people held idols. They gave food to those little idols. They gave gifts and prayers to their idols. And at times they buried them. The people indeed had no intention of giving up worship of Jehovah, as they so forcefully said in their response to Joshua's question, But neither did they say they would not also serve other gods at the same time as they were serving Jehovah. They readily acknowledged that indeed it was this Jehovah that rescued them from the Pharaoh and who led them through the wilderness and provided for them. It was this Jehovah who defeated their enemies and gave them a land of their own. But vowing not to abandon Jehovah and instead serving other gods is not the same thing as vowing to abandon other gods and serving only Jehovah. and Joshua detected this in their response why did they respond that way were they just being clever or hedging their bets not at all refer back to last week's lesson the early part of this one. The way the sphere of gods worked in their minds in no way required them to make one god mutually exclusive over all other gods. All this talk of worshiping Jehovah and being careful not to abandon him in no way meant to them that thus they could not also continue dealing with the gods of fertility and rain and storms, because to them to do otherwise would just seem absurd. Rather, the people are hearing what they want to hear. They see Jehovah as the one who has obligations to them. They see their God as required to protect them and provide for them because that's the way the God system of all the Mystery Babylon religions operated. And so, in proper response, they would in turn serve Yehoveh. Ah, but not exclusively. Joshua, however, is seeking something much deeper from Israel. He wants their motivation to serve God not to come from obligation, but from love. He wants them to base their worship of Him on who He is, on His nature, His attributes, His characteristics. His nature was explained in earlier verses and the retelling of Joshua uh, of uh, Israel's salvation history. And Joshua is saying that for them to understand Jehovah in the same context as they've understood all the other gods makes the proper worship of Jehovah as impossible. And the first reason this is impossible is because God is so holy. See, the thing about holiness is that it is both a saving and a destroying attribute of God. It is a unique characteristic of the deities, but especially so of Jehovah. The holiness of the Lord ought to so impress his followers that they, that we, want to imitate it. In fact, that is his expectation of us. But even more, the true worshipper of God recognizes that Jehovah's holiness is so great and awesome and transcendent that we cannot possibly meet all the demands and requirements of such a spiritual being. On the other hand, the Lord God is personally insulted and offended by those who fail to be impressed by his holiness and do not at least attempt in a sincere way and according to his laws and commands to meet his expectations of them. Thus, reasons Joshua, such a man cannot serve God. The second reason that Joshua says the people of Israel cannot serve God is that God is jealous Now, to the ears of the Israelites, their understanding of jealousy didn't match with the spiritual reality of God's kind of jealousy. In the God system of that era, the gods were jealous of one another. They were constantly battling amongst themselves over who would possess and mate with a certain goddess or over who would control which elements of nature and to what extent. The Lord God, on the other hand, was jealous for the affections of his people, those who chose to worship him. God didn't see those silly gods as rivals, for we all know they were but figments of men's evil imaginations in the first place. So he turned his indignation not against non-existent other gods but against those followers who were unfaithful to him he was he's given undivided love and attention to Israel and so he demands that in return if those who call themselves by his name do otherwise he will punish them in hopes that they will see the light but if they don't see the light they will be destroyed as certainly as those who had never known him And thus we have presented in this little short verse of Joshua the cosmic dilemma that faces all humankind. We are simply not able of ourselves to serve a God who demands that we serve Him. Our minds are just too perverted with the ways of the world. Our souls just too unclean To be in his presence, our ears closed to his voice. The level of our expected service to him is too perfect because he's so perfect. His expectations for his people are higher than they can ever hope to meet. His expectations and the consequences for failing to meet those expectations are what we call God's justice. That divine system of justice is spelled out in the Torah. Most specifically, it's detailed in that section of Torah called the Law. There we find that the Lord meets out rewards that are called blessings for meeting His demands and punishments that are called curses when we fail. It's also Yehoveh's nature not to sit idly by as his people pursue the favor of other gods. It was the norm within the understood God system that Israel went by. The gods who lost the devotion of a worshiper would just simply wait around for that errant worshiper hopefully to return to him. Not so the God of Israel. Yehovah will go out and discipline his own when they stray in order that they would come back to him. Verse 20 is ominous for Israel of Joshua's era, of all the following eras, and naturally for all who call on the name of the Lord for our redemption. It says that if we ignore this dire warning and go seeking after God's we do not know, then the end result will be destruction. As I said earlier in defining holiness, It is both a saving and a destroying power of God. The first half of Joshua 24 went about reviewing the saving attribute of God's holiness as as it detailed how the Lord rescued and redeemed and lovingly cared for Israel. Thus I describe it as Israel's salvation history. The short section of Joshua 24 that we're in right now is a reminder of that other attribute of God's holiness that destroys. It destroys those who know God but refuse to serve him wholeheartedly. God says he will reverse salvation history if Israel gives its affections to other gods because their salvation only has meaning In the context of full devotion to him and to him alone. And you know the prophets of old old warned over and over and over on this exact subject. But Israel wouldn't heed those warnings. And we know the results, don't we? Destruction and exile. We'll finish up the book of Joshua next week.